Welcome back to the drive home with Timothy. My name's Dustin. I've got Timothy here with me. I could listen to that music all day, and sometimes I do. Um, happy that you're here with us today. I hope you're having a great week. There goes the music. Man, it just feels good every time, doesn't it? You can take it all the way down if you want. Okay, good. Um... No business today. We're just going to jump right into it. We're going to talk today about, you know, I do actually want to stop for a second. I didn't, this wasn't planned, but I've got to, I need to talk to you about people who pay for gas with cash. What is happening in there? Occasionally, I know you've seen this too. You get out of your vehicle, you go into the gas station while you're vehicle is being fueled up because you paid with a card because you're a grown-up and then you go inside and there are people in there you go inside of course because you want like a slurpee or uh you want a peanut butter twix king size please thank you and um there are people in there that are handing off like a ten dollar bill and they're saying to put this is ten dollars for pump three and then the the gas st- station attendant just takes their money and puts $10 on pump three, like that's just fine? No, where's your bank account, man? What's, you need a card. Um, I, those people get to vote the same as the rest of us? Like, I don't... That was just a quick little deviation. Um, what I really wanted to talk to you about today. Welcome again to the Drive Home with Timothy. My name's Dustin. We're going to talk about Joy Milne and her husband, Les. Um, if you haven't heard of this story, and I hope you haven't, um, it starts many, many years ago. Joy Milne, no, I don't think her name was Milne at that point. She was 16 years old. She was in a new school in Scotland. She's Scottish, and which is why she's in a school in Scotland. That's where the Scottish people go to school, try to keep up. And she meets a boy who was 17, and his name was Les. And she fell hard for Les. And um, one of the things that she says made her fall hard for him was his smell. He had this, she described it as a manly musky smell, which like who knew if you could go back in time and tell me in high school that that's how you get girls, you got to smell musky and manly like your grandpa's cologne. Um, I don't know, maybe things would have gone different for me. I mean, things aren't bad now. I just got a slow start. But um, she fell in love with him partly due to his smell. They uh, they dated throughout high school and through college, and they got married after college. He became a doctor. She became a nurse, had a great life together for about 10 years. Well, had a great life together after this as well, but for about 10 years, everything was fine. She said that he was the sweetest, most um, considerate, kind, patient person that she had ever known. Um, one day, when he was 31 years old, he comes home from work. She goes to give him a hug, and she was like, whoa. Where were you at work today? That's you got a, a weird smell on you, and he said he hadn't been anywhere out of the ordinary. Um, but she insisted that he smelled bad, like yeasty bad, just like a nasty smell. And so she told him to go take a shower. He went and took a shower, comes back, and she's like, "No, it's still there. Maybe it's your clothes." She's rewashing his clothes, and <clears throat> and this turns into a thing where 
day after day, she keeps telling him, I don't think you're washing very well in the shower, which like those of you who are married, you can totally understand that conversation because I think we've all had a version of it. But um, for for days and weeks afterwards, she's like, something smells wrong. You got to fix it. And um, he says, I'm not doing anything different. Same shampoo and soap, same habits and everything else. So um, they just kind of make their peace with it. But she just constantly over the next, you know, few years um, is recognizing a musty. See, this problem is musty versus musky. <clears throat> right? So musky, musk is good, apparently. Ladies out there, you guys like a musk, but you don't like a must, right? Because a must smells like mold. So this dude smells like mold. And um, eventually gets to the point where they're kind of arguing about it back and forth for years. So we fast forward into their 40s, and she's noticing not only is his smell different than it used to be, but his behavior is different as well. Um, he gets moody, he's less patient, he's not quite as kind to her. And um, one night she wakes up in the middle of the night, and um, her husband, Les, is attacking her. He's screaming, and he's, he's grabbed her by the shoulders, and he's shaking her awake. And um, turns out that she's having, or he's having a nightmare, but she's convinced that something is really wrong. And so she makes him go and get checked out. She thinks that he has a brain tumor, and that's why his behavior has been changing lately. Um, instead, he ends up being diagnosed with Parkinson's disease at 45 years old. So um, they kind of make peace with their new life together. There are a lot of sacrifices. It's not quite what it was before. His behavior continues to change. In fact, he becomes almost unrecognizable from the, uh, the, the person that he was when they got married. Um, but they're, they're sort of getting through it together. Um, 20 years down the road, now they're in their 60s, and they have really struggled together against this disease, but they're still together, and they've kind of grown together over it. And when it becomes clear that he's in the final stages of Parkinson's, and that he'll, in the near future, he'll lose his life to it, they join a Parkinson's support group. And um, they the first time they go to a meeting, they are late to the meeting, it's already started, and as they walk into the room, she describes being completely overwhelmed by this musty, yeasty, moldy smell. The same smell she recognized on her husband when, she, when he was 31 years old. Um, they finish the meeting, and after the meeting's over, as they're moving around through the room and interacting with different uh, Parkinson's patients, she notices that some of them smell very strongly of this smell, and some of them smell just a little bit. And she sort of figures out that it might just it might be something having to do with the disease, and that those who smell very strongly are probably in the later stages, and those who smell more mildly are just sort of starting out their Parkinson's journey. So when they go home, she mentions this to her husband. And he is actually really open to it. And they talk about it a little bit. They both have had careers in medicine, and they understand how difficult Parkinson's is to treat. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and they personally have given up a lot to this disease. They've had to sacrifice a lot of their marriage um, because of what it has taken from them. And so they decide if there's any way at all that they can be of help to people who have this disease, whether now or in the future, they don't want to miss that opportunity. So they 
they look up and find um, a guy by the name of Tilo Kunath, who is a PhD researcher in Parkinson's. Uh, he specializes in Parkinson's research at the University University of Edinburgh there in Scotland. And um, they they look him up and they go find him, and um, and they have a meeting with him. And Joy tells her about her experience and how she has smelled these things on her husband for over a decade before he was ever diagnosed. And then she smelled it very strongly in the support group. And she thinks that there might be something here. There might be some sort of chemicals that are given off by people with Parkinson's disease that she, for some reason, can detect where other people can't. And um, Dr. Kunath very politely dismisses her. Um, He doesn't believe her. Uh, He believes that this is some sort of anecdotal experience and nothing scientific about it. Um, And so he sends them home. And it's several months before he hears about some new research showing that dogs, in some cases, can smell cancer. And he immediately thinks of Joy and Les, and he calls them and asks them to come back, and they decide to do a little experiment together. And the experiment they do is he gets uh, uh, patients with diagnosed Parkinson's disease and some healthy volunteers who do not have diagnosed Parkinson's disease And he sends each of them home with a clean white t-shirt. And he asks each of them to wear it overnight. And then in the morning, take it off, put it in a box, and bring the box into the the research facility. Once the boxes get there, he labels them all with numbers. It's, um, you know, nobody knows who who was wearing what. And then he has Joy smell each of the t-shirts. She opens up the box, smells the shirt, and, and... tries to identify whether this is somebody that has early-stage Parkinson's, late-stage Parkinson's, somewhere in between, or whether it's a healthy individual that doesn't have Parkinson's at all. And to Dr. Kunat's amazement, she is near perfect in her uh, diagnosis. In fact, the only mistake she makes is there was a T-shirt that was worn by one of the healthy volunteers, and she says, that guy's got Parkinson's. And that was the only one that she missed. And that guy actually, a few months later, was diagnosed with Parkinson's. So she identified it even before his, uh, his healthcare professionals did. So they continue to move on with their studies. She has actually shown the ability to identify Alzheimer's, tuberculosis, cancer, diabetes through the same method. She can smell, I don't know whether she can smell a difference between them, but she can smell that something is off and she's, she can correctly identify them. Um, her husband, Les, did eventually pass away, but she talks about the final six weeks of his life after they discovered that she had this ability and that it was sort of scientifically valid. They were working on it together. They're both scientists at heart. And for the last six weeks of his life, rather than drifting apart like the disease had sort of tended to make them do, and a lot of people in the late stages of Parkinson's get very, very moody and uh, sort of disgruntled, and that seems to have been the case for him, but he also had this extra sort of connection with her. So they were working on it the last six weeks of his life, and the last thing that she says that he said to her before he died, his final words to her were, you won't let this go. You will do it, won't you? You promise? So he was he was fully invested in it. And she has, to her credit, since his death, continued to work on this, and they're, they're using her uh, input to try to identify these biomarkers that maybe people with Parkinson's give off that might be detected by other ways. And this is this could be a way of early pre- or early detection 
of Parkinson's disease and these other, um, other uh, diseases. So what's the point of all this? What does it, what does all of this mean? Um, I don't know. <laughs> it's kind of interesting though, but I, I did have a couple of thoughts. What, number one, how many people do you think had the same gift, but just never really interacted with somebody who had Parkinson's? So they never noticed it. How many people had the same gift, if you want to call it a gift, and I think, I think it is a gift, but they married, and they married somebody with Parkinson's, but they just thought their husband smelled bad and didn't ever recognize that it was everybody with Parkinson's that had this smell coming off of them. And how many people might have even gotten to the point where they smelled their husband, smelled the people in the support group, they knew they could smell Parkinson's, but they didn't want to feel stupid, so they just kept it quiet. Um, it shows, I think, how fragile a lot of these sort of big moments in history are. You know, there's the thing about like, um, <clears throat> not really a comparable example, but Adolf Hitler was, was wounded in World War I and basically had his life saved by another soldier. If he had not had his life saved, if he'd been killed, World War II may not have happened at all. But also, how many other Hitlers were killed in World War I or in other wars that would have wreaked havoc on the world, but they didn't because they were dead? Or how many died of typhoid fever? <clears throat> or how many had a stranger give them a hug and so they didn't turn into Hitler at all, you know? It just goes to show you. But, also, but you know... Um, other, other sort of fragile things. Penicillin was discovered by accident. Pacemakers were invented by... I started. I just started looking up like what happened on accident that changed the world. The person who invented a pacemaker was trying to create something entirely different and was frustrated when the device he created functioned a certain way. And then he stepped back and he was like, whoa, that might be able to organize the heartbeat in whatever way it organizes the heartbeat. Um... I mean, all the way back to Christopher Columbus was trying to find India or China and ended up accidentally bumping into America, which brought a lot of opportunity and wealth and, you know, a lot of good things. Unless you're a Native American, then it ruined everything. Um, but I don't know if there's a take home here. I'm not going to preach to you like I usually do. But um, the story of Joy Milne and her husband Les, food for thought. My name's Dustin, and this is The Drive Home with Timothy.